Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I think that a lot of people ruin loneliness by worrying about it, when in fact it can be a the scene of revelation, you know, in, in senses great and small. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This episode was such a pleasure for me. It was so needed right now. It was so needed. Marilyn Robinson is one of probably the greatest uh, living novelists. She uh, wrote Gilead back in the day, which won the Pulitzer Prize. She's written a number of other books, Home, Lila, Homecoming. Her new book is Jack. She's also done a series of beautiful uh, essay collections. And her books just make you a better person. That's probably the simplest way for me to put them. Um, Gilead, like for a lot of people, is simply one of my favorite works. But a lot of her work, um, just she has a quality of being able to see the wonder in the world and being able to believe in its promise, even as being clear-eyed about its failures, that it is really inspiring. And this is not, I want to note, a show that is disconnected somehow from from the issues of the moment. Uh, Robinson's books are are very, very political in their way, very political in the classic American sense, very concerned with questions of race and democracy and what does it mean to live in fellowship with each other. It's a reason she uh, was President Obama's favorite novelist and she did a series of interviews with him or actually more to the point, he did a series of interviews with her when when he was a sitting president, which was a little bit of an unusual thing. But so she's in her own way been uh, an important uh, player and inspiration at the highest levels of American politics. But just getting a chance to step back from what is happening right now and immerse myself in in her work and think about the world the way she thinks about it was such a pleasure right now. And the conversation itself was a joy, and I hope it is all those things for you uh, also. Um, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Marilyn Robinson. Marilyn Robinson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. So let me start here. What draws you to Calvinism? I was teaching Moby Dick in a graduate class, and I have was struck as one always is by the fact that it's just very weighty with theology, you know, whether explicit or implicit. And so I thought, well, I should read the theology that he's probably in conversation with or disputing with or embracing. And so I read the institutes. I taught a very odd graduate seminar where I was teaching Moby Dick and the institutes sort of side by side. It was incredibly instructive for me to see uh, what are clearly, you know, the aesthetic traditions of Calvinism and so on 
so closely related to his thought. No one reads Calvin. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm magnetically attracted to people that other people don't read. That's just a, my fate. Maybe it's predestined. Well, <laughs> it's true. It's true. And it's also been very meaningful to me in many ways. For example, realizing how far someone's reputation can drift from any grounds for it, you know. So I read on. I've read a lot of Calvin at this point, and uh, I find my the impression that I began to take when I was reading him in the context of American literature to be confirmed. You know, he's very brilliant and he's very humane. And uh, over time, I realized that his thinking has become extremely important to me on, on those grounds. Tell me a bit about his thinking. Um, the the concerns and struggle with the idea of predestination is laced all the way from Gilead to it's a huge part of, of, of the new book, Jack. And the characters often talk around it or get right up to it. But but how do you understand predestination? How, how would you explain it? I feel that the whole problem is misstated and has been since it first arose as a problem, you know, in writers like Augustine, who all the all the major theologians, including Thomas Aquinas, have believed in, in predestination. I have his summa contra gentiles here on my table, so I can show people that at the end of the third book, you will find an essay on predestination that that embraces it as fully as Calvin ever does, you know. He says, and they all they're all ethical writers. They say on the one hand that of course God is omniscient and omnipotent and it's impossible to think that there could be anything he did not know, therefore determine, you know. But if you look at what they actually write, all these theologians are great ethicists. They assume certainly that everything that you do matters and that you exercise you know, choice in the things that you do. So um, there's a sort of unresolved, uh, you know, con uh, contradiction there. Now, I think the problem is that people have a very primitive understanding of what time is. Of course they do. I mean, physicists would agree. And people have a very primitive notion of what causality is. Uh, you know, you can you describe a, re a regularity or a predictability, but you can't describe anything intrinsic that makes causality fall out in the way that it does, you know? So all I'm saying is that the it's the idea of sequential time, and it's the idea of being locked into a necessary chain of causality that makes people assume something like predestination. But in, what I'm saying basically is we don't know enough about either time or causality to build a metaphysics around our assumptions about how they exist in fact. And, and again, a lot of theologians will talk about the fact that there is no arbitrary grounds for, for assuming that the world will re recreate itself as it was in the moment before the any present moment, as if there could be such a thing as a present moment. But, you know, this is this is kind of complex, I suppose, but at the same time, the the question is based on a false model is there free will or determinism? And I'm proposing that reality itself is something we don't really have a good language for. We don't know a way to articulate a, a possibility that basically, you know, embraces and resolves 
what to us appear to be irresolvable contradictions. I love the way you put that. And and I, I believe I'll be the first interviewer to ask you this question in public. But have you watched HBO's The Watchmen? <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. My tastes are strange. I cannot recommend enough, given what you said about predestination and time and causality, causality as being the key issues there, that you check out this miniseries. It's really, now that you say it like this, now I think that series is all about the question of predestination <laughs> and it's continuing to occupy really great minds. I will definitely look at that. I, I'm very interested in the the sort of odd noticing that attaches to a lot of your books. And Something that, that you've said a couple of times is that there that a lot of your view on reality was reshaped by a footnote about the moon in an old Jonathan Edwards essay. And I've read a couple of your descriptions of this, and I, I feel like I haven't quite gotten it. So I'd like to hear you talk a bit about that that footnote and, and what you took from it. Well, you know, when I was a, about, a, I guess I was a sophomore in college, strictly speaking, I took a course in American philosophy and, and Jonathan Edwards' uh, uh, Doctrine of Original Sin Defended was one of the big texts. I was very much oppressed, deeply oppressed and depressed and impressed at that time by uh, the kind of um, determinist uh, models of human behavior and psychology that were that were actually being taught. You know, it's it's funny people who who teach uh, outside the language of, of religious tradition always act as if they've liberated themselves from the problems of theology, but you have them making exactly the same mistakes, you know, so that, for example, I, behaviorism was very big in the school where I was going. And uh, it meant that you were basically governed by regimes of reward and punishment. And that this this has been true, will be true. You know, you are, you are the creature of, of experience in that sense which is something that occur that happens to you being rather than being anything that reflects you as an individual being you know as a unique being so i think this is very closely related to the old idea of of predestination because one of the things that it does is is uh, it creates a secularism that removes the option of god god is out of the question if things are locked into causal chain of necessity, you know, if this, then that. And and what um, Edwards says is that we, we perceive the moon as being continuously illuminated. And in fact, it is illuminated infinitely small seconds of time. It is newly illuminated by the sun. So that if you think of reality by that analogy, then the the reality we experience is in the same way, you know, renewed as itself, moment to moment, second to second. These these uh, quantities of time are very crude, but they, you know, you can find any physicist saying, you know, why is it that I perceive time moving coherently when there's nothing I can describe that requires time to move coherently? You know, why do I? wake up in the morning worrying about the same thing I fell asleep worrying about or whatever. Where does this continuity come from, you know? So um, this created in my mind, my, of course, religious imagination, but also just in general, the idea that there's play, that there's the possibility of an actual freedom or actual newness in reality itself, that the stability we see. I'm sure that Edward somewhere said, although I can't find it, that that 
the content continuity that we experience is a courtesy toward our sensibilities on the part of God, you know, so we know what we feel that we know our reality, you know, which is truer at sometimes than others, I would say. But in any case, I felt as if I could re-understand reality in a way that implied that that God was free to act in it, that God did act in it, and also that uh, it could be available to things much more complex than than the kinds of necessities that were described to me, you know, by Freud, by any of them. This is a a, a part of your work that I really love. Um, I've been struggling recently with a book by a guy named Donald Hoffman called The Case Against Reality. <laughs> and he's, I think, a neuroscientist at the University of California at Irvine. But, but his basic argument is that we did not um, evolve to be able to perceive reality as it is. We evolved to be able to like make our way through the day, right? And, and when you say there's nothing that should force us to understand time linearly, um, I think some of the answer that one might take from a model like that is that it was just good for us if we did. But, you know, like I have a little kid and they perceive the world in a very different way that is good for learning and good for expansiveness, but but not as good for um, getting getting chores done or, you know, keeping to a schedule. <laughs> and and there's something very interesting about the ways in which both your fiction and, and, and your nonfiction, I think, really foreground this idea that we see reality through a, a glass very darkly. You have a, um, in one of your essays, you have a description of your metaphysics that I just love where you write that... Um, if physics and cosmology are truly sciences, then there exists a body of excellent evidence that the scale and the varieties of being vastly exceed anything an earlier generation could have imagined. This persuades me that reasoning about ultimate things cannot be based on the anomalous fragment of reality accessible to our awareness. And I really wonder how you think about that, because I wonder what to do with that. What if you take seriously that we almost certainly can't perceive reality as it is? Then where does that leave you in what you are perceiving? Well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, you know, I have, I speak as a religious person. I find the mystery of it simply reinforcing my metaphysics. But, um, you know, I read, I can't remember who I was reading, somebody highly respectable, but he was saying that we actually, our impression of reality is actually like half a second ahead of reality itself. Not only do we lag behind perception in some ways, but but our our mind allows us to anticipate reality, to stabilize experience by anticipating what is predictable. You know, Th- those kinds of things. It's like you know why your eye closes against a mote of dust before your brain knows that there is a mote of dust. You know what I mean? There are all kinds of of accommodations made to our circumstance that are very difficult to describe in the ordinary terms, in ordinary terms. And there are all these redundancies built into a human body, like, you know, two different immune systems and so on. One is a holding action and the other is the serious, you know, assault and so on. These things are accommodations to reality that I find very difficult to reconcile with evolution, because there are so many of them. People always say, you know, the ones who couldn't do that died, but they say that about so many things that you, and the things that we are intuitive about are so subtle, you know? Something that amazes me is very often, like if I'm in a conversation with people, or, and then I, I go away and after a day or two or three, 
my my mind makes me re-see that. I suddenly I realize, oh, I didn't understand what was going on. I missed the point. I, you know, I said something stupid or something. You know, why does your mind retain a circumstance to be reappraised at any, you know, at with sometimes with years of delay between the experience and the reappraisal? I just think we're way too complex. Uh, if somebody with an evolutionary model, and I'm not saying there is not evolution, but I'm saying there's it's not only itself, you know. If any of, of the kind of classic evolutionists came up with an account of real complexity of the kind that we now are overwhelmingly aware of, I would be more persuaded that that was an adequate uh, description of, you know. The thing that bothers me about the way evolution is talked about, and I know there's strain, you know, change in organisms over time and all this sort of thing. But it, it again, it has a determinist model behind it, which implies that all the factors in change are known, which certainly not, you know. Again, I'm I'm very content in many cases to say we don't have an adequate way of describing something. We can't make settled judgments, and. Uh, that whole area of thought, I would like to liberate into indeterminacy. There are a lot of areas of thought I would like to liberate into indeterminacy. <laughs> um, let, let me let me ask you about one one piece of that because there is a, a a radical humility in your posture and the idea of, of of liberation into indeterminacy and the idea that there is so little reality that we can perceive in our own fragmentary awareness. And you're also part of a, a, a particular faith tradition that sees some explanations of the world as valid and others as and, and rules others out, right? Like polytheism or you know other things that, that people have come up with or that nobody has come up with. Um, how do those things interact for you? That that feeling there's very little that can be perceived, but there's also some things that can be trusted. Well, you know, my my religious tradition allows me to make decisions for myself on the assumption that other people will make decisions for themselves, you know, about what has the quality of truth or value or anything. The kind of overstatement of possibility that, I mean, I don't know what the universe or what ultimate reality will finally consist in. I don't think it's my position to make those decisions. I know that there are people who, to my cultural eye, seem to be polytheists, who to their eye, seem to be monotheists and so on, you know. So uh, I, I believe very strongly in making the making the best that you can of what you feel that you can be a judge of, and that with with all humility, you know. Um, I you know there are some choices, some decisions about truth and worth and so on that we, I think we really have to consider to be beyond ourselves as human beings. I have a very, very strong presumption toward respecting the impulse of religion, which is, you know, it's the step over over what I take to be a reductionist model of reality. Um, and so it always has my sort of tentative sympathy, granting that it can go as crazy as all other things can. Yes, Klancho will be back after a short break. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover 
Who was their best mentor? What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. Let me ask you about just awareness in general. Uh, the thing I really love in your work is the intense quality of attention you give to things. You have a line in, in, in Gilead that I, I always think of. This is an interesting planet. It deserves all the attention you can give it. And I find it very hard to give this interesting planet the attention it deserves. And and I'm I'm curious how you cultivate that quality of attention or that quality of noticing. When I was preparing for this, I saw a, a comment your son made about you in a New Yorker profile where he said, as a parent, you were never distracted. Um and as a parent, <laughs> I'm often distracted, which frustrates me. Um, how do you how do you uh cultivate that? Well, you know, I I'm just interested in you know, when I had children, I was, I mean, small children, I was very aware of of watching their language develop and watching their consciousness and their individuality and so on. It was very, I've always been interested in just trying to get some sense of the human, you know. And here I had two little experimental subjects right in my house. And so we could sit on the floor and talk to each other, you know, and both go away wiser, you know. But um I mean, this is, I mean, it's a complex question because it's also part of my religious tradition, which which implies that there that through reality there is an interaction between human consciousness and the divine. Um, that the the mind, the conscience, and so on are highly permeable and constantly permeable to to meaningful experience that is nevertheless also conventional experience, you know. And then, you know, I, I mean, I, I've been interested in that for, for for a long time, but it's also true that, you know, writing helps writing, you know. I remember when I was beginning to write housekeeping and I was recovering a memory of a place where I hadn't lived for 20 years. I was in France in a dark house writing about Idaho. It was very strange. But the um, question I would always put to myself is, what is it like, you know, and which is in, inviting a metaphor and then find the metaphor, you know, and at what point does it touch the memory or the reality? Writing that book was a tremendous lesson for me in, in, in how I could recover the sense of things that I, that I had perceived that I would not know my memory would have kept for me. 
I was amazed at what what I retained, you know? And I think that that's true. I think lots of writers find that, that they have, you know, the old, well, how do you know what you think till you see what you say, you know? And also, how do you know what you know? Or how, do, you know what I mean? That's a very strong thing for me, the idea that that we are are in effect almost attended by our minds, that they live a larger life than we are aware that they do unless we have some specific reason to draw on them. Writing for me is is involves that a great deal. I, I want to hold on that practice for a minute. So you would sit in, in, in this darkened room in France and think about growing up in, in, in Idaho and ask the mornings in Idaho, what were they like? And, and search for what came to your mind. Is that how that would work? Well, you know, it was, I think that what I did purely accidentally was created sort of sensory deprivation chamber because I was in France and the little kids around the kind of farmhouse where I lived would come and knock on the windows just to see if I was alive. I don't know. But in any case, I didn't want to be rude to them. So I shut those big shutters that they have in the doors. And then that room is totally black. And then I lighted a little, I turned on a little bedside lamp and I had a spiral notebook and I was... When I thought about, you know, what grows in a certain place, you know, I would have what seemed like a visual image. Um, Very often there's something in my mind that becomes, that's clearly employing what would be used to see something. And then I can sort of, you know, it's not like I'm reconstructing it by bits, but it's like I can see it and then decide what to make from it. I hate to talk about these things because it always sounds like I'm going off into some jag of mysticism or something. But in fact, that's true. And I think it's important to me for people to realize that they're much larger, more complex, more consequential entities than most culture allows them to believe. And uh, I mean, and I learned that writing in the most unambiguous way. And and I think anyone could, you know, you pay more attention than you know you do. How does it feel different when you're trying to write your essays from when you're writing your fiction? And I ask from a very specific place of, of interest in myself, which is I have been trying in the last year or two think a little bit more and write a little bit more metaphorically at times poetically to read more poetry and more fiction because I feel like when I write, and I'm normally a political columnist, I write in this very literal, argumentative, straightforward way, and that there's a whole range of perception and intuition and communication that I'm missing um, and ways to communicate that I'm missing. Uh, But I have a lot of trouble shifting the gears of my own mind, whereas you're able to sort of work in both forms. And I'm curious how that feels different or how the, the practices around that feel different. Well, I can begin by saying they do feel very different. It's it's strange. I it's hard. It's very hard to talk about. When I write nonfiction, I tend to be putting together ideas that have come across my awareness or that have been important to me. Usually, trying to to make them accessible or to make them plausible or you know, I'm making a case in effect. Whereas when I'm writing fiction, the hope is that I will have found my way to something that 
that speaks for itself, that is not interpreted, but is adequate to interpretation when it comes. I write nonfiction in part so that my fiction will not be burdened with the kind of thinking that I do that belongs in nonfiction. <laughs> so uh, these, these are, you know, sibling processes for me. Is the process of, I don't even know how to ask this because I'm so inexperienced writing fiction, but is the process of research and thinking very different on the front end, or does it feel like the work you do reading the primary texts of of past scholars and, and past moments and Puritans and so on, that they're contributing to the same like subconscious of, of ideas and intuition that you then direct into different tracks? As you say, you know, I, I don't really, sometimes I read nonfiction sorts of materials because I have been invited to make a lecture, you know, <laughs> and you, you want to have, you'll, you know, be on solid ground. But I virtually never read anything historical or nonfiction uh, that I intend to put into my fiction. I, but when I write the fiction, I find out that it's there, you know, like the abolitionist movement is something that I researched just for its own interest. And then of course, when John Ames entered my mind, all that fell into place around him. I've heard you say that your history with loneliness has been one of your great blessings. How so? I, you know, I, it's something that I share with everybody in my family. You know, it's like our family culture is, you know, tends toward loneliness. What can I say? I think I was brought up in, in the Western society. I mean, you know, Rocky Mountains, where those kinds of traits were valued in people. I think that maybe uh, people did not go to such places unless that was what they were looking for or comfortable with. And then I'm, you know, four generations down from that <laughs> initial initial decision. I There's a joy in, I mean, if you're used to being lonely and you think you ought to be lonely because there's a kind of rigor and clarity involved in it, then it also feels kind of joyful. I think that a lot of people ruin loneliness by worrying about it, when in fact it can be a the scene of revelation, you know, in in senses great and small. For for what it's worth, I also ruin happiness by worrying about it. So it's not something I only attach to loneliness. <laughs> um, is there a difference for you between loneliness and and, and solitude? Uh, well, yes. I mean, if your loneliness you know, is satisfactorily supplied with sunlight and good books and so on. Then it, then it lapses over into solitude. And, uh, and that's a form of bliss. Yeah, it's been something I have only, I've only learned to appreciate solitude as an adult and um, even more so as a parent, <laughs> but, but only as an adult. I, I, I think in my, for most of my life, I was kind of antic about not being alone. And it's only been as I've gotten a bit older that I found I actually need some of that time and there can be a beauty in it. But then I, I often think of the difference, and this is maybe informed by people in my life, of whether or not loneliness is a choice or whether or not it's imposed. Um, there's a real difference between knowing you've decided to stay in tonight or keep to yourself tonight and then feeling like there isn't anybody to turn to. And I'm, I'm curious which of those you feel you've experienced. 
well, you know, I, you know, it's kind of, I, I mean, if I would otherwise feel lonely, my first defense is to feel solitary, <laughs> you know, mm. but so that, that has become so, you know, deeply characteristic of my thinking that I, well, it's, I, I flipped the switch, you know, I, I'm not even aware of making the choice anymore. The kind of loneliness that you were talking about, the negative loneliness, it's a privilege. I, you know, I mean, what is it? the thing that I mean is a privilege is the fact that I have many resources for being very autonomous. Um, you know, I'm I'm healthy. I'm, you know, comfortable in every way. You know, I have things that I absolutely want to do, which is very important. I think for anybody. Um, I, you know, my my happiest condition is focus when I, you know, when I really know what I'm doing and really feel like I have a, a hold on it, you know, uh, and that happens only when I'm alone. So, I mean, I know I'm enjoying a privilege in the way that I so profoundly enjoy solitude. I want to turn then, and I know this is a little bit of an, an inelegant segue, but to the collective. Uh, I was reading your book of essays, uh, your most recent book of essays, and at the beginning of it, you write, I know it is conventional to say we Americans are radically divided, polarized, but this is not more true than its opposite. In essential ways, we share false assumptions and flawed conclusions that are never effectively examined because they are indeed shared. What What are some of those shared false assumptions and, and, and flawed conclusions for you? I'm not going to be adequate to your question, but I'm going to respond to it anyway. The for example, I was in England. I was reading to the Royal Society of Literature, and they liked my writing. And you know, there was a sort of silence after I finished. And then this, um, a, a British man in the in the audience said, "American writers have a great advantage. You have such a beautiful dialect." Now, what American <laughs> would ever say that? <laughs> you know. I was just a joke. My my nightmare was being in a debate with a British conservative because I find myself agreeing even though I didn't think they were right. <laughs> well, you know, the thing, I I mean, we can't hear our, you know, who knows? Why should I argue with this man who said this lovely thing? But I tell, I tell that anecdote to my students because I want them to consider the possibility that it is true, that they have the ad advantage of a beautiful dialect listen to themselves then, you know, f find the music in what you're saying, you know. And, and, you know, another thing is the American educational system, the state university system is the wonder of the world. There is nothing equivalent, nothing, historically or at present. We treat it as if it were some sort of, you know, thing to be I don't know, neglected or something as if we should, you know, you have to go to two or three universities or you're really not educated at all. You know, when there are, I mean, I have traveled widely in the field of American education. There are so many wonderful institutions out there, big and small, high morale, devoted faculty, you know, you don't find this in other parts of the world, certainly not by the hundreds, you know, it's just an astonishing thing. Not only that, that fantastic libraries, fantastic concert halls and all the rest of it. Why do we live, why do we assume that we're in some sort of cultural pocket of squalor 
when in fact, you know, people all over the world are dreaming of coming to the University of Nebraska, you know? Um, why do we diminish? And then, then, of course, that leaves them very vulnerable to be cut back by state legislatures and so on, which is happening now, or treated as quasi-failures, even though nobody names the failure. I mean, at this point, things like that have always sort of irritated me. But at this point, many incredibly valuable American institutions are vulnerable. And if people don't know what they are, don't, don't, you know, value them properly, they could find that they're either lame to be on recognition or lost. I'd feel I'm in California and I'm a, a, I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz, and then at LA. And it feel that feels very true to me. We, I, I would say California has the single greatest system of public higher education that exists anywhere in the world. And I don't think it's close. I think you're absolutely right. We do not treat it like the jewel it is. And you would think we would just build and build and build into that capacity. And instead, we just raise tuition over and over and over again. And it's the most wild and sad thing. For all that we feel that we have advanced on earlier generations, in many ways, the scale of our ambitions, particularly our public ambitions, have fallen so far. That is so true. It just breaks my heart. The only good thing is that the public could awaken. <laughs> the great populace could rise and say, you know, stop messing with our educational system. You know, the privilege of having access to such a magnificent culture. I, I just can't, you know, it's just being squandered. I can't believe it. But I think there's a deeper, not deeper, but uh, a, a corollary ideological reason here, which speaks to something else that you, you talk about in that book of essays and also some of your other ones, which has to do with the expansion of the metaphor of, of like evolutionary self-interest to all walks of life. And some people like Wendy Brown would call this sort of neoliberalism as a rationale, as a public form of reasoning. But this idea that everything has to be measured in terms of the competition it engenders or that it allows. Um, at the universities in California, the constant argument is that, of course, tuition should go up because what a privilege to go to them because then you do make more money in the future. And that, of course, creates more pressure that what people study in the universities has to be something that makes them a lot of money afterwards, which you know right. pushes towards, say, STEM fields, which I have absolutely nothing against and away from, from humanities often. And just there's this very dominant metaphor that everything should be about a certain kind of selfish competition, or at the very least, a kind of survival of the fittest, which you've written about as kind of a slipping of the bounds of a metaphor from, from Darwin and evolution into other parts of life, but, but feels like a very important kind of water we all swim in in America that ends up affecting everything, even when we don't quite realize that's the ideological structure behind it. Right. Having just praised universities to the skies, on the other hand, you know, there is active philosophy at work in our world framing questions like what should people be able to hope for? <laughs> you know, what is the obligation of, you know, society toward its members and so on? These are these are questions that have gone on for centuries and that we have made important decisions regarding. But now philosophy has become in the universities and therefore everywhere this sort of strange pseudo french game of whatever you know um the sort of attack on meaning that uh 
you know, a dog is not identical with the word dog or shin or whatever, you know, I mean, like, duh, you know, which is how I would respond to a great deal of this stuff. But it has taken the place of philosophy. It is not philosophy. If philosophy were something that did not matter and did not affect lives, that would be okay. You know, this sort of intellectual macrame could go on forever. But Indeed, we live in a world where philosophies like survival of the fittest, you know, we forget that that evolution and Darwinism and so on had the structures of a, um, virtual metaphysics in terms of their consequences for all choices in life and so on. And they still do. And we need to talk these things over because people are being presented as if it were obvious you know, this sort of cutthroat business that most people hate, most people are injured by even if they win, you know, uh, that make your life pass before you notice what has happened, you know, that make that make the actual wealth of this civilization into poverty in a great many cases, simply because people are worked to death. I mean, you know, there are reasons for that. There are articulated rationales behind that kind of social organization should be criticized in philosophic terms and philosophy is off pretending to be about something nothing whatever you know i mean i think that's a very destructive and very sad movement in university life that brings me i think to my favorite single line from that that book which uh you write at one point it's i I believe if i'm not misremembering in an essay about education and higher education I miss civilization and I want it back. What in civilization have have we lost? What do you want back? Well, for example, you know, that was my mother's favorite sentence from everything I've written. Really? (laughs) (laughs) But in any case, um, what I mean, you know, because I'm old, you know, I can remember being told that that education was valuable in its own right that it was a gift to anyone to be educated, that it was, uh, you know, that something very beautiful had gone on among the languages and the sciences. And, uh, you know, to bring yourself abreast of it and, and, and know your moment and know your culture and so on was a tremendous privilege. And, and so, I mean, I went to, I went to a, an extremely minor little high school, public high school in a tiny lumber town in Idaho. And I was taught Latin, you know, and we read Shakespeare, all this sort of thing. It was, you know, somebody looking at us now would say, what in the world do these kids need with Shakespeare? There's a this kind of, um, what's the word I want? Utilitarianism that has entered into other people's thinking about your children. <laughs> You know what I mean? If it's somebody looking looking at you from the outside is saying, well, that's not going to help her run a lumber company, you know, that might be arguable. But in any case, it's, it is, again, that determinist thinking. I take this child, I plug it into, as I imagine, that economic need. And anything else that the child might wish for is expendable. Or anything, any aspiration that parents might have. Those are expendable. And this is a very crude utilitarianism that is in, that is new in this culture. 
at the time, at the very moment that we spend all of our time saying, this is the richest country in the world. If we're so rich, why do we move toward impoverishing so many things? I just can't imagine. It is it is the strangest thing. We are, this is one of my favorite things to think about, but we are so rich and we have so betrayed the idea of what previous generations would have thought we would have done with so much riches, um, to, to say that Absolutely. ungrammatically. I, I love this old thing that John Maynard Keynes had this essay on the economic possibilities of our grandchildren. And he forecast, and this was during, I think it was during the Great Depression he wrote this, he forecast you know, if economic growth kept up, we'd have X number of doublings of our, our income. And by then, our great, 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 great grandchildren, they'll only have to work like 15 hours a week. And, and we live in, in in the period he was projecting into. And what's crazy is he was right. He was right about yeah. the income. He He nailed it. And we work more than ever. And what's even wilder is that it used to be that you know the the rich the rich people they didn't work really at all like the whole point of being rich was you didn't have to work and now <laughs> it's the you know the richer you are in, in in our culture the like just statistically the more hours you work it's all just become like toil for toil's sake true and it's it's a values question it doesn't make a ton of sense um somehow we we lost the plot we certainly did and i think that you know I mean, I've written about this a lot. You're probably telling you what you probably know, but we have diminished our sense of what a human being is. And that's part of what makes it, you know, anomalous, you know, to educate them, to to create, try to create humane structures around them, to try to keep them in, you know, in good health and all the rest of it, you know. The idea behind the period when we built all those universities, which tends, you know, for the most part, the middle of the 19th century, the idea was that people sort of bloomed like flowers. You know, you give them, you give them something to think about, you give them competences, and then a new thing comes into the world, which is that person's application of those possibilities, you know? It's part of the competitive model. I think we're no longer interested in the fact that some kid we don't know might turn out to be a genius, maybe because our own kid is not a genius. You know what I mean? The the fact that that people and you know you don't have to be a genius. People have their splendors that they are able to, you know, deploy if they're given the right circumstance. Um, and we we're taking away in a certain sense the professions that our ancestors made to create exactly the possibility of the opening of of the brilliance of any, you know, any given individual. Any student of mine will tell you, I always start out saying the human brain is the most complex object known to exist in the universe. I think that's a very, I mean, and that's the brain, right? Attach the nervous system and then, you know, but in any case, we are profoundly complex. We are profoundly able. We don't know what we are. Our, the, our course in life is to discover who we are and what we are. How can we, sh- we shut this down? It's, I mean, if anything is amazing, that is amazing. If anything is a potential avalanche of value into the lives of us all, material or whatever, that is, that is where the riches lie, you know? We talk people down. People are depressed because they don't know what they are. It, it really bothers me. 
The Ezra Klein Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let me ask this question now from another direction of, of critique, because I think here we've been talking about the way our society is so rich and it wastes it on a kind of crude productivity. Um, and why aren't we sitting around reading philosophy and, 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 and Shakespeare? But of all the work of yours I've read, the character I struggle with the most and think about the most is the grandfather in Gilead who is a, an, an, an old Hebrew prophet type and right. who gives away everything he owns and everything anybody around him has because that is what true Christian ethics would demand. There's always somebody poorer who cannot rest and cannot stop because like there is so much injustice in the world around him. I think you have a line in there that there like that it is he eats and drinks. He says that I eat and drink disappointment all day and there's no day long enough. And and that's another kind of challenge to this kind of of richness, right? That it is immoral in a world with so much injustice and so much deprivation and so much want to enjoy any of it. Um, and, and he is a very tough person for his family to be around. That kind of outlook on life can make you very hard to those who are near and dear to you because they are not suffering as much as others are, but they want to be treated with the partiality of kin. But but how do you think right. about that challenge? Not the challenge of of civilization, but the challenge in some ways of of more hardcore Christian or even non-Christian ethics. It's a very, that's a very hard thing. I don't, I mean, you know, now that you, I mean, I try to be generous, but I have also, you know, made my family comfortable. You know, I made myself comfortable. Um, and now that there's all this talk about, you know, basically the economy sinking away and people being evicted and so on, I, you know, I I never anticipated, I I never anticipated that I would be feel so self-indulgent in a way, even though the indulgences 
were just normal behavior when I, I thought they were middle class. You know, you have some money, you buy a thing. <laughs> now it all seems like some great rebuke, you know. I don't, I think that the question of obligation is very real. I mean, speaking from a Christian point of view. Um, and I think that, you know, John Brown is a great example of someone who's, whose thinking was entirely, entirely righteous and who nevertheless seems to have ended up a little bit of a madman. Although, frankly, I have more sympathy with him than other people do, than historians do. I mean, how could you live, how could you be a sane man in a country that had slavery? What kind of accomplishment is that, you know? Well, isn't there a line that it's not a mark of sanity to adapt yourself to an insane culture? Something like that? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And frankly, <laughs> you know, if you look at the past, one of the his one of the burdens of history is the fact that societies can be completely crazy. Or 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 crazy at intervals, which in a way makes it harder to deal with. You know, you can't make a categorical um, argument. But you know, like in when I was reading about the Middle West and reading about St. Louis and so on, they actually in Missouri and Illinois, and those are the states that I know about, doesn't mean in, that any other state is exculpated. They had a law against teaching black children at the secondary level. It was against the law. And so in St. Louis, a black clergyman took a raft out into the middle of the Mississippi between Missouri and, and, and Illinois and anchored it there. And then he would row students out so that he could teach them on his raft because he had escaped <laughs> the rigors of the law, you know? And you think, how, you know, then of course, St. Louis responded finally by building the first black high school west of the Mississippi, but which is where Della teaches, by the way. But what possible rationale could make you keep kids from learning algebra? What, you know, it's just craziness. And there's so much, uh, I think Jim Crow was probably as odd a set of arrangements as there's as ever have occurred in the Western world, perhaps. But um, when you look at them, you know, you think John Brown was crazy and this is sane, you know? But I think it can be easy for people to feel that that's a question that needs to be answered looking backwards, right? That it's a question for people who lived in John Brown's age or Jim Crow's age. And I'm very interested and, and very sympathetic, I think, to the people who say, no, it's a question about our age. Um, you know, a lot of my socialist friends will say that, and frankly, non-socialist friends, about the unbelievable inequalities of wealth in a world where so many have so little. Um, I do not want to compare this to human suffering, so I'm going to be, I want to draw that distinction very sharply, but I'm very radicalized on on animal suffering issues. And I think the, the industrialized animal agricultural uh, structure is going to be seen as one of the great immoralities of, of human history, given its scale. And I think it can be easy to look back and say, well, they, like they in the past, they they were in some, they were in a really sick society and how come they didn't see it? But I don't know. And then you add in climate change where we're potentially truly making this world far less habitable 
to those who will come after us than it was left for us. I think about this all the time. If we're, I think we assume that we're the heroes of the story, and I wonder sometimes collectively if we're not the villains. Oh, I don't believe we're the heroes. I just my point is that that insane things made sense to people long enough yes, for them to have profound impacts on culture and in any number of human lives and so on. Um, the the point of history is to make you aware of of how human beings behave, can behave, you know, um, how how wide the margin is, you know, of of behavior that that civilized societies will consider possible, you know, appropriate. There's some sort of, you know, you always think that the neighbors in the next house have a nice family and, (laughs) you know, are very decent to each other and so on. And then you find out they're in the tabloids the next day, you know. We have a way of assuming that other periods or other countries uh, only do things that are, are reasonable, you know, that would stand up to scrutiny. But in fact, there's a tremendous amount of craziness of all kinds, you know, that is discoverable in history and in contemporary societies. Uh, And in order to know for, you know, in order to be serious about scrutinizing your own behavior, you have to realize that as a member of society, you're capable of, of deluding yourself about the degree to which you deserve to be called sane. I love that. <laughs> and I and I, I really appreciate that as a point of, of how to think about history. When we read history, because this seems to me to actually underlie some of the way you go back to primary texts, do you think that we do so without a with too much of a belief that it is the past? Which is to say that I think that we often read history and read it like a story that doesn't truly apply to us as opposed to asking the question, which is embedded in what you're saying, that if they acted like that then, then not only is it likely that I also would have acted like that then, but it also raises the question of whether or not I am acting like that now. That almost by by nature of calling it history, in a way that when we call something fiction, we sort of understand it's an exploration of, of the human psyche. History gives us a separation from things that I think is actually often misguided. It, because we have this belief that somehow we have culturally evolved, that we have matured as a society, when often it's not true. We're just a little, we're just we're just a little bit different, right? And I mean, and often I have the feeling now that we're sailing along on the accomplishment of other generations that we're not adding much that's positive, or and in fact we are allowing things to decay or we are corrupting things, you know. But, you know, history, I mean, etymologically, I think it just means story. I think people sort of knew, you know, have known. People were charmed by, you know, Thucydides because he told a good story, you know. I really believe very strongly in in primary texts so far as they're available, not because they are certain to do justice to the past and not because I, as their interpreter, I'm certain to do justice to it. But you when you do look at these older things, you realize how much has fallen out of history, how, you know, academic habits and so on, cultural biases that winnow, you know, so the things that would complicate stories drop out. And I think that that's a, a very valuable use for looking at things that are as close to the question temporally 
as as you can find yourself. Let's move into the very temporal now, because I'm, I'm talking to you, it's October, we're less than a month from an election. Um, a lot of your work in essays and fiction is about the political underpinnings of America. You have a close relationship with former President Obama. And I've been thinking a lot about something that, that you've written a lot about, which is democracy itself and the way we've maybe denuded that word uh, of, of what it really means. So I, I wanted to start with this. What does democracy mean to you and what does its practice demand of us? Well, you know, democracy has a very particular history in this country. There aren't so many countries in the world except for maybe the Democratic Republic of China or something who embrace that word and there never have been. You know, I mean, it's uh, the word democracy was used in a highly negative sense. It meant mobocracy, you know, until frankly, until the United States assumed a certain prestige, um, which took a long time. I mean, I'm very, very dependent on Thomas Jefferson, lovely language, and then all the lovely language that has grown from it, from Lincoln and and Martin Luther King, and the the idea of, of equality based on the sanctity of the individual person. And of course, that's an idea that works better in a religious context than it does in a uh, this kind of strange tendentious context that we have now where people want to make you know invidious judgments of other people on the basis of religion which is really the defeat of jefferson you know i mean the assumption has to be if we're created equal that there is an equal sanctity in every person because you know in the nature of having been created by God, you know? So for me, whatever, I mean, for me, theologically, that's as it is. For me, metaphorically, this, the, the implication of the sanctity of the person is a way of stating the, the incredible overplus of brilliance that is invested in any human person, you know? by virtue of the complexity that I describe, by virtue of their endless creativeness and so on, which we live surrounded by to the point where we don't even see it anymore. If people in as individual people, therefore the collective, are not seen as precious, then forces that are simply powerful begin to push them around, begin to squeeze them into corners, begin to deprive them. And there is, you know, you can use words like loser or sucker or something like that and seem to diminish them in a way that makes it seem inevitable and even just that they should be, that they should be undercut, that they should be undervalued or they are dismissed, you know. Our democracy comes very directly out of the, the the assertion of human equality. Everything we can accomplish, everything we can agree on, comes from the idea of equality. And, and what does that ask of how we interact with each other in a democracy? I've, I've seen you say that you think the basis of democracy is a willingness to assume well about other people. Tell me about that, because I think that is something that particularly right now, not only do people have trouble actually doing, but but many people think, well, maybe assuming well is a place evil can hide, right? And so there's a, a salutary effect for me to see things in, in starker shades of good and evil. 
I think that if you see another person as evil, you are effectively blinded. If we cannot assume that other people uh, arrive at the positions that they hold in good faith, then we have no basis for reconciliation, for compromise, for consensus. You know, I mean, all the things that we lack right now. If you put people in a position where what they, you know, your resistance to them is non-negotiable and as theirs is to you, then we have already stepped out of the, the realm of what is possible to a democratic culture. And this, I mean, I know this is a very hard thing to say because, or to, to hear, because uh, a lot of the things that I hear now from people I disagree with, I would consider non-negotiable. That's absolutely true. Nevertheless, we have to keep a democracy alive because we are the culture that the world looks to to see if democracy is possible. What it has meant up to this point is it is a tremendous explosion of, of education throughout the culture, a vigorous press that you don't find elsewhere, um, um, people who at their best moments remember that they are the government and are responsible for it. I th the potential for good in a democracy, the potential for making sure that the, the land is treated well and that the cities are respected and served and so on, that we can experience a kind of joy in the fact of our honoring one another in a way that distinguishes us, you know, all those things, they're essential to democracy. And we have to, it's a huge concession on my part to say huh, that certain things cannot be considered non-negotiable. And I'm working on that. But we have to be able to talk to each other if we lost the whole thing. I'll, I think in general, I think a lot about democratic practice. And, and I actually think a lot about the show as an active democratic practice, small d democratic practice. And I'll be, I have thought through my career that this is something that I try hard to do and, and, and work at. And I'll be honest that I specifically have trouble with it with the current president who oh, yes. I have trouble extending. It's not that I have trouble extending an assumption of good faith. It's more that when I do so, what I find on the other side just isn't that changed um, because there's a bluntness to him as an instrument and to his words that um, it doesn't leave a lot of, of space for rhetorical shades and, and, and you know, reinterpretation. So I'm curious how, but I struggle with that um, because obviously a lot of people do see good in him, including people, by the way, that I love and that I respect who are close to me. So I'm curious how this principle applies for you in your thinking about him. You wrote a, a very powerful New York Times op-ed um, just today on the day we're talking or published it today that, that speaks of him a little bit. So. Do you feel that you're able to extend him good faith or what does it mean to extend him good faith? Well, you know, I don't consider him a political figure at all. I mean, I don't think he he is embraced by people as if he represented them as, you know, their politics, their interests, you know. But I I don't think he does. I think it would be extremely difficult to say that he did. I I think it's probably true to say that he ran as a sort of a gag with the possibility of, of uh, enhancing his brand. 
that he, and giving him many opportunities to speak to crowds as he surely wants to do. Um, but I don't think, I think that uh, his politics is simply a matter of navigating between people that might be able to do him good and people that might be able to do him harm. Uh, his choices are made on that basis um, and remade and remade as circumstances require. But this is not political behavior. This is, uh, you know, this is uh, an exploitation of uh, of a role in which he found himself quite, quite accidentally, and I think never understood. I don't feel, you know, if somebody, if a conservative that I respected, you know, let's say if an imaginary Mitt Romney or somebody were to appear in my living room, I feel as if I could talk to him in a way that was mutually respectful and perhaps even productive. But that's because he's a political person. We, I could talk to him about infrastructure and it would be meaningful what he replied rather than this, this is going to be infrastructure week. Oh no, this is going to be infrastructure week. Oh no, I have a health plan. You know, all of that language is just to gloss over the fact that he has no politics. He is not a political figure. Therefore, I do not have a democratic need to try to reach understanding with him. That's really, that's a, I think an interesting point I need to, to reflect on. But, but what do you do in a democracy? I mean, which we sort of are, um, although I think less and less, frankly, um, given who holds yeah. power and, and how many votes they got in the relevant elections. But, but putting that aside for a minute, I think this is a very profound question of this era. How do you maintain modes of democracy and democratic practice when key figures in it operate i think a, a way of saying what you're saying is is are not operating within that construct yeah they're not i mean that's that's there's a real growth in the sitting government of people who clearly have have no interest in democratic process as we have known it and sustained it thus far you know I don't think we have any other option than courtesy, generosity, a very, very strong scrutiny of our own ethical soundness, you know. I think that, you know, I think we have lost trust with one another and that the only way to regain trust is to really deserve it and that this that will require things like self, self like, Real generosity, real magnanimity, real self-restraint, um, and a kind of uh, you know ethical soundness that makes us able to assume well in other people because they can assume well in us. You know, I mean, I'm talking about a very difficult thing. But then, what are the options? If you take arms against this particular sea of troubles, you've created a zillion more troubles. If you disrupt an orderly government you bring disorder that will bring a disorderly government. I mean, that's just how, you know, there are miles and miles of texts to that effect. And and in any case, democracy, if it works, is a, is a, a moral achievement. It, it means you respect yourself and you extend that respect to other to other people, you know. Sometimes we have to take into account the necessity of participating in democracy, not simply by dropping a ballot, but by actually being the sort of citizen that other people need to believe we are, you know?
I like that a lot. Um, be the kind of citizen other people believe we are. Uh, I think that's a good place to close. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the show, which is what are three books that have influenced you greatly that you would recommend to the audience? You know, my right, my reading habits are so peculiar. I, I, you know, I love the early American writers. I love them. Emily Dickinson floats through my brain day after day, you know. People laughed the last time I told this. So this is a this is a test. I have become fascinated by the Birdman of Alcatraz. It's a very, very subtle question about the rights of society over against the individual. To what extent should we hope to condition one another in order to serve some standard of society that we take them to be inclined to violate? You know, I mean, I'm I'm reading the book that was written by Robert Stroud. I'm reading the book that was the basis of the film. I have ordered a book about John Frankenheimer because I wanted to know what his views are on the subject and so on. Um, but it's it, that was a sort of crisis, a moment of, of American self-criticism around penology, you know, that, you know, yielded solutions to the problem as it was perceived that were very inhumane, no matter how many, you know, warm meals and suits of clothes, you know, were in enhancing the, the, the prisoner's experience. So, I mean, as a, as a sort of an allegory of the problem of reform, I think that it's just very interesting, um, partly because we don't reform anymore, you know, and, and dear God, I hope we will, especially prisons soon. Anyway, that is, I'm reading in that strange little literature. Um, and, and aside from that, I'm working on the Old Testament. I, I love that. Those are wonderful recommendations. Um, I told you this before we started the show, but in this election month with so much awfulness surrounding us, it's been such a wonderful tonic for me to, to get to spend so much time in your books. Um, your new book is Jack. It is wonderful. Marilyn Robinson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Marilyn Robinson for being here. Thank you to Roshay Karma for researching, to Jackson Bierfeld for engineering, the Ezra Klein Show's Vox Media podcast production. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.